Wazoo, one of the co-hosts of About Sustainability, a podcast where we discuss and draw attention to contemporary issues and events relevant to sustainability. This podcast is an initiative by staff at the Institute for Global Environmental Strategies, IGES. Today, we want to share with you a short side conversation between Andre Mater, Bob McDonald, Simon Olson, and me when we were talking about the Convention on Biological Diversity, or CBD. By the way, check out that episode too if you haven't already. Okay, so we need to keep planting more trees if we want to save the planet, right? Or not. It's often really hard to see the forest for the trees, but maybe we need to take a step back, actually, and see beyond the forest first. Let's get into it. I've just heard that um, I think there's a, a lack of definition or common understanding of what nature really means. Yeah, and and yeah. there are some countries that are trying to introduce it in order to replace the environment. Mm-hmm. For what reason, I don't know, but mm-hmm. uh, they, they, they aren't successful yet because I think because there is no common definition of it, right. political, political definition. Right. Okay. So I don't know too much about that, but um, certainly the word nature just like biodiversity is open to interpretation to some extent, right? So, I mean, having grown up in South Africa, which is a country, very biodiverse country, first of all, and also a country where there's still relatively large amount of land that's um, considered pristine. And I have to add the inverted commas there because no one really knows what pristine is. Uh, there's been, there've been papers written on how even the deepest recesses of the Amazon uh, have shown signs of human habitation so it may be that the forest there which is regarded as you know ancient forest might not be so ancient after all so these are very um uh just inc- incredibly interesting uh, but incredibly complex uh, topics an old professor of mine i watched a youtube video of his the other day where he's talking about or arguing against the world's obsession with forest and he's a grassland and savanna expert um, and he's done empirical research and also uh, reviews showing that uh, some of the world's grasslands are older than uh, than many of the world's forests. Mm-hmm. And grassland is often, uh, you know, grassland is, and shrubland are often considered to be kind of a degraded state of nature. Um, but in, in some cases, they're, they precede the forests. Um, and the forests are also, in some cases, the result of, of human habitation. There's actually an amazing, in that presentation, he shows a map of a place where he worked, um, I think it's probably East Africa, considering the landscape, but uh, it's an aerial view of a fairly sort of gray-brown landscape, which is uh, shrubland or uh, grassland. And then it's got these green blotches all over the place. It's taken at quite a height, so it's a, maybe an area of about 50 by 50 kilometers or maybe 100 by 100. And then you zoom in, and those dark patches are forest. And if you zoom in even more, you'll see a village in the middle of each of those. And uh, the research that was done, basically going back, uh, you know, using aerial photos and and other evidence, and then also speaking to the oldest people in the villages, they determined that basically those forests are, are man-made forests, uh, human-made forests. Um, that was savanna or grassland before. And it's difficult to kind of to always know whether it would be better you know, if it was completely protected and people were just pulled out of there. Um, but some of these, some of these uh, sepals, socio-ecological production landscape or seascape, have been sepals for hundreds or thousands of years, especially in Asia. There are lots of examples of that, uh, where we don't even know what the place looked like before they were doing that. 
Uh, and what we do know is that when people pull out of some of these places, like in Japan, where you know people are moving to cities more and more, the rural areas, um, maybe that's reversing a bit now with COVID, but typically uh, also in, in parts of Europe, especially Eastern Europe, rural areas are emptying out. Mm-hmm. And that's leading to um, these uh, agricultural areas being overtaken by natural vegetation. And in many cases, that's actually a reduction in biodiversity. This kind of goes back to the forest argument a little bit. The dominance of trees is not necessarily good for biodiversity. Um, and that's uh, there are plenty of examples of that. Another example is in eastern southern Africa, where the fire regime or the grazing regime has been changed because of human, usually because of human interference, especially with fire. If the fire frequency and intensity has changed, that's going to change the entire dynamics of the system. And very often that leads to an increase in um, uh, tree cover. So these landscapes that are uh, naturally or traditionally uh, savanna or grassland change to tree landscapes covered entirely by trees. And they have their own suite of species, but very often it's uh, far less biodiverse than the grassland that preceded it. You p- painted the picture of this aerial photo that showed uh, the gray-brown uh, grassland yeah. area with some green dots. And then you said, as you zoom in, the green dots are where people live. Mm. But then the, in the European example, you say when people leave, it's a reforested. So so what, the forest comes no matter what, with or without people? No, it, it depends on the ecosystem entirely. So in African context, yeah, you're looking at, um, oh, I'm just thinking about some of the, the drivers. I mean, this would require studies and probably studies have been done. But in the African, East African, Southern African context, um, one thing that will increase the cover of of trees is reduction of fire. So fire, uh, typically speaking, favors grasses. It also depends, it gets gets quite complex because frequent frequent cool fires will favor trees because they don't kill the trees. So they they keep on burning the grass down, but the trees can keep growing because they don't get killed by the fire. And less frequent, more intense fires or simply less intense fires uh, sorry, more intense fires uh, may kill the trees and then perpetuate the grass cycle, which is more the natural way of doing things. And then another thing in the African context might be that um, uh, people would be uh, managing the way that the area is grazed around them. Uh, so they might mm-hmm. have cattle that graze on grass, but don't eat trees so much. In the meantime, they're keeping out or they're hunting the wildlife that would normally be there, that would normally keep the trees suppressed. As, yeah, we normally keep the trees suppressed. So those are just two possible drivers behind the the forest increasing around human settlement. They may even be planting trees. You know, that's another right. possibility. Whereas in the European context and Japanese context, um, I don't really know, but I think that probably forest is more the natural state of things, and so and that's kind of why it comes back. But the species that come back are not necessarily the ones that were there thousands of years before. You know, before people were uh, were there. Um, so yeah, in those landscapes, it might be a case of, uh, people for, for the sake of, um, of, uh, production, completely clearing large areas of trees and planting crops and other things there. But even though, even though they're crops, they can be, uh, they can be beneficial to a lot of, a lot of animals. Right. So yeah, those are just some possibilities. That's not sort of a definitive answer, but right. just to give you an idea of how different things can be in different places. Right. But I guess the... Thank you for the explanation, Andre. I, I remember that um, being from Europe, I remember in, in primary school, we used to learn that 
um, four or five hundred years ago, a squirrel could jump from tree to tree from the south of Spain to um, the north of Scandinavia without hitting the ground. And that certainly wasn't possible when I was a kid, and I don't think it's possible now either. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, a lot of uh, what uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of agriculture in Europe and has been a strong agricultural tradition that, of course, has influenced. But mm-hmm. you're saying that the, even even um, even uh, clear-cut land can be more biodiverse than forested land. But I guess it depends on how you actually use the land and what you do to the land. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Intense, yeah. intense agricultural systems. I mean, the way that we have used them tend to uh, take away from the biodiversity and, and the species that can live healthily on the land. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it depends a lot. So sepals, the socio-ecological production landscapes and seascapes, are are typically kind of low intensity. Um, and they're usually sort of surrounded by by forest. You know, there'll be forest nearby, um, and then there'll be a variety of crops. They're not just doing one, you know, monoculture of one thing. They don't use much in the way of pesticides and herbicides and that kind of thing. So there are various factors that contribute to that. I want to know more about how this might relate to the thirty by thirty target, um, mm-hmm. which is you know to protect thirty percent of global lands and seas by twenty thirty and um, how this might relate to local communities, right? Because as we said, like local communities have been managing ecosystems sometimes for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a bit more about that potential controversy? The controversy behind that was the concern that some countries, you know, the more autocratic regimes who might want to fulfill the obligations or the commitments to the CBD uh, you know, by getting to 30 by 30, uh, maybe doing that at the expense of communities. So yeah. a long story short. Yeah. yeah. In fact, some civil society people from from Pakistan and Philippines uh, representing indigenous people, that's exactly what they mentioned. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to report on SDG 15. And they say, you know, um, there's so much going on. The government is, is, um, is, first of all, the government is redefining plantation as forest. That's one thing. Yeah. And then the other thing is that they are kicking out, they, they are basically using indigenous peoples and, and local communities' land, mm-hmm. kicking those people out and saying, this is now a protected land and this will count as our reforest, uh, as our net positive uh, forest gain. But basically those people are then left at the sidelines. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's plenty of uh, history to recall. And in South Africa, in my, my home country, um, some of the national parks famously became national parks by kicking people off the land, you know, in days when you know, there was no accountability uh, for doing that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's a, it is a bit of a tricky one. And maybe the OECM concept has, has a lot of potential here because, you know, if countries, and, and I, I need to understand it a little bit better perhaps, but if countries know that they can um, contribute to their target simply by showing that this land is being well managed, you know, in some way or another, even if they've got nothing to do with the management themselves as, as government, that could have a really beneficial effect. It might might encourage them to, to support people who are using the land in a sustainable way, you know. So maybe there's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the concept and I have been quite uh, skeptical about it, to be honest, so far, but I think that it could be used in a good way. Um, good yeah, but can I just kind of comment, just to comment on that plantation example that you mentioned now that's uh goes back to this whole obsession with trees mm-hmm. thing um and uh, the the professor of mine that i mentioned has has uh, spoken out about this quite vociferously in the past as well uh you know the the whole there's, there's been kind of a global trend towards tree planting in recent years 
and um, without really going beyond that, you know, I think most people don't know enough about ecology to know that it's not uh, enough to just plant a tree. It has to be the right tree in the right place in order for that tree A, to survive uh, and B, to not harm the landscape. And, and that um, might not sound so important until you multiply it by a million or a billion or a trillion trees, which are the figures that people are talking about now. Um, so there are some, uh, well, several examples around the world. A uh, big one is in Pakistan, actually, um, another one in China. Uh, but there are plenty worldwide where a lot of greenwashing has been done in the name of uh, uh, tree planting uh, without any consideration for uh, you know what the impacts on the on the landscape are. And uh, there was a an infamous paper recently, I forget which, it was in a big journal, I forget which one, but looking at uh, the potential of the earth for tree planting. And they did sort of a very uh, rough level, rough scale map of the world. Uh, I don't know if they actually showed it graphically, but they spoke about which parts of the world could be planted with trees in order to help reach climate targets. And then it turned out that many of those areas, apart from being communal lands, were also uh, places that had never been forest in the past and were not supposed to be forest. So uh, on the one hand, as I said, on the one hand, those forests might not survive, which is a big factor in tree planting. A lot of it is just a waste of time because they don't survive. Um, and then probably the, the more damaging possibility is that those trees just um, take over and they can reduce biodiversity drastically. You know, you can go, you can decrease the number of species in orders of magnitude by by orders of magnitude by doing that kind of thing. But and plantation is, sorry, just to add, plantation is the most extreme example of that. And um, that's kind of the form that tree planting initiatives often take rather than trying to reforest and create ecosystems. So it's, Thank you, Andre, for explaining this. I understand it a little bit better. But it, it's, it seems to me then thinking that uh, climate change objectives, like we need to find the best, uh, most natural way perhaps to, to capture and store carbon, which mm -hmm. I guess are trees, but then that, that goes against some of the, the, the needs we have on the biodiversity side. So where do you, where do you find a, a balance between those objectives? Yeah, well, so one thing to mention is that the amount of carbon stored in soil is four or five times more than the amount that you could possibly, even if you planted every inch of the earth with trees, you would not be able to reach the level that is already stored in the soil. So preventing the permafrost from thawing uh, is far more important than storing carbon in trees. And another thing is that trees are, you know, as soon as carbon is tied up in a tree, that tree can't be used for anything else. So that, that's one thing. That's sort of a minor issue, but in some cases it is an issue. But the other thing is that, um, you know, just as the permafrost, the, just as the thawing of the permafrost will release a huge amount of carbon and methane, you know, from the, especially the northern right. regions of the world, in the same way, a single fire, uh, you know, will, will release all the carbon that's stored in trees and, and to some extent underground as well, because fires go underground to burn roots and uh, rootstock. So, yeah, so trees are uh, part of the solution, but uh, not the main solution. And then, of course, also the oceans uh, sequester more carbon than, than the forests do. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's tricky. Yeah, sounds tricky. <laughs> mm -hmm. now, there was recently a big YouTube project for planting a million trees, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Do you know anything about that? I don't know about the particular one, but they're they're really all over the place, and a million is 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 tiny compared to what what's being done in uh, in many parts of the world at the moment. 
They're usually in the mm. billions these days, you know, the really major ones. But um, there was a very kind of high profile young professor in the UK who was pushing the tree planting thing uh, quite strongly. And a lot of the, uh, he was raising the ire of a lot of uh, other scientists who were saying what I've just said now, you know, all the, the considerations. And he's uh, changed his tune quite drastically he's like he's he's sort of corrected what he said before and he's now kind of trying to push in the opposite direction and there are some governments i think that are doing the same thing they're recognizing that uh, this is not as simple as planting a bunch of trees sorry what um, is the andre what is the opposite direction then to to planting lots of trees is then is that to not plant any trees at all or i mean if we i guess it's just to be more careful right yeah just to be to yeah to be more careful so that would involve i mean Planting trees where trees belong, first of all, uh, and then planting trees, not just planting trees, but also maintaining trees, which is the difficult part. Um, I remember a very famous South African botanist telling me that uh, it's also these things differ hugely depending on the rainfall. Uh, this this kind of thing is so much easier where there's a lot of rainfall than it is when you know, even if you're planting dry dry adapted trees, uh, it's much more difficult to make them take in dry areas than it is in wet areas. But he was saying that uh, in, at least in the sort of semi-arid parts of South Africa, if you plant a tree, even if it's a, you know, sort of a three meter tall tree that you plant out, which is a lot of effort, right? To plant trees of that size in any number. Um, he said that the herbivores, the browsers will go directly for those trees. Uh, and as far as he knew at the time, there was no kind of scientific reason for that. But um, he reckons that there's something about being raised in, uh, you know, in uh, nursery conditions, it makes it makes the leaves more succulent or whatever. But that's a bit of an aside. But uh, I've also heard that typically about the, the success rate or the um, survival rate of trees beyond a couple of years is about 10% in these tree planting initiatives. Uh, that's low. Again, that depends a lot on the climate. Um, in wet areas, it's going to be a lot higher than dry areas. But even in wet areas, the success rate is not so high. Unless, of course, you plant an invasive species, which is going to have um, its own consequences. Yeah. One thing is related to you were saying why herbivores go straight for these newly planted big trees. I've also heard um, that use wood for use in, in building things. Uh, trees that come from natural forests, like dense forests, are a lot stronger, a lot better wood, mm -hmm. more dense than wood that grew up planted in rows without as much competition for sunlight because they grow more slowly when they grow in a forest like that. So that could be one reason for that. And, but I, the, that wasn't really a question. The question I had was on something you said earlier, which was uh, that once you plant the trees, you can't use them for anything. Mm -hmm. um, I was, th I thought that trees kind of captured carbon and then if you if you cut that wood down and replaced it with another tree, that new tree would would start capturing carbon, maybe at not the same rate. But I didn't think that like using the tree to build a house would then release the carbon. Am I yeah. wrong about that? No, no, you're, you're right actually. So I should have uh, said that more carefully. So as long as the as long as the wood doesn't rot or burn, then it's it remains captured. So. Eventually, it's you know it could be it could be a couple of hundred years. Um, some houses, some wooden houses, are are as old as that. Um, and there are some other ways that you could use wood usefully without it uh, either rotting or or burning. Uh, but eventually, it's going to happen. And eventually, that carbon is going to be released one way or another. 
so everything is about kind of flux, you know, and change over time, I guess, including the permafrost. It's just a case of time scales um, and, uh, and managing those time scales. Yeah, so so I guess the, you could technically be growing trees and then harvesting the wood and using it uh, not for firewood, but for building, for example, and then replacing the tree and that'll continue sequestering carbon. So there's no net loss of carbon until that wood is, as I say, either burned or, or rots in some way. Thank you for listening to About Sustainability. Please subscribe at podcast.iges.jp or search for About Sustainability wherever you normally get your podcasts. If you've got feedback, you can review us on your podcast directory of choice or reach out on Twitter at IGES underscore EN. About Sustainability is produced by the Institute for Global Environmental Strategies. Any views expressed during the podcast are those of the speaker at the time of recording and do not necessarily reflect the views of IGES. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us. We don't take that lightly, and we hope you'll join us next time.